Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon, this is Anthony Chen and you're listening to another episode of Family Business Radio. Today we have two incredible guests with us today. Uh, we have Randy with Winfield Realty Group and Todd Harris from Skillshot Media. So opening up the show for us, Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Thank you for uh, coming on. So kind of share with us uh, your background story as to kind of what got you into real estate. So years ago, I was uh, really doing contracts on carbon paper, selling my own personal property and handwriting those contracts on the coffee table. And ended up going into corporate America. Corporate America went through the dot-com crash. And at that time, I had, you know, had all these skill sets that happened to just fall right in line with uh, real estate. And it was a love that I had. And I just jumped in and never looked back. Mm-hmm. So speaking of your love of real estate, can you kind of share with us your first time experience uh, doing a real estate transaction? Oh, gosh. It's one of those where you, you know, you walk in and you doing the deal and you're, you're nervous. You got all those butterflies and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just want everything to be perfect for the client and you don't want to do anything that, you know, messes up anything. And, uh, but it's, it, it went incredibly well. So it's, uh, it was just one of those things that, you know, it just kind of clicked for me and I loved it. Mm-hmm. So kind of addressing the, the, the elephant room, cause everyone knows it, just even remotely looking at, the real estate market being as hot as it is. And then of course, some of people's concern is, well, are we going to have a 2008 experience again? Can you share with us a little insight as to what you see? Sure. From my perspective, and I, you know, I try to follow the numbers. I read a lot of the same articles and, uh, you know, hear a lot of the same things that people are uh, hearing out there about, you know, where are we at? What's the market like? Obviously everybody knows the the real estate market on the residential side is absolutely superheated. You put a house on the market, you get tons of offers, over asking price. People are waiving contingencies on appraisals, things like that, waiving all kind of inspection periods, et cetera. Um, you know, but people are saying, well, it's so superheated right now. Maybe we're going to experience a crash or there's a bubble on the horizon. Well, if we look back on history from 2008 when uh, the market did crash, that was due to the mortgage cr- meltdown crisis. Builders, we're only building half of what they normally would have built in any year. So there's been a pent-up demand just on new homes. Then we uh, we also have some folks that have – younger folks have been jumping into the market that everybody said, oh, they won't buy houses. They're just going to live in town in apartments. They're never going to experience home ownership. Well, mm-hmm. that turned out to be a, a, a falsehood, and they're jumping in the market. Interest rates are great. So it's created this superheated market and the builders can't keep up with demand. And so it's really driven the prices up of resale. We have a lot of people relocating from other areas of the country that are perhaps more expensive and they're relocating into Atlanta. So that's resetting the, uh, resetting the bar, resetting the prices. So the, the short, uh, rest of that answer is I think we still have a couple of years yet before we, we get back to a normal market. Whatever that is. Yes. Uh, or some would say this is kind of a new norm, but hopefully not so in terms of just on the pricing. It's the new normal now. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then kind of le- leads it to two questions because you kind of scratch a little bit uh, on the supply side. And then with the kind of the millennials kind of jumping in now into home ownership and you read of uh, some people saying, oh, we're going to live in, in rental or apartments or whatever. Um, and you had the insight to see, well, that's not going to be the case. Have we seen a cycle like this in the past? I have not experienced this. And, you know, perhaps somebody that's much older than me and has (laughs) much greater depth of experience in years might have have seen it. But I have not seen anything like this. This is uh, a very unique market that we're in. It's a challenging market for those that wish to buy and have home ownership, uh, you know, to have that home ownership dream. Um, But, no, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. So kind of looking in terms of kind of the difference uh, with the housing market value or price and then comparing it to the appraisal. And then, of course, you add on to the top of that would be 
uh, for the insurance brokers out there, the insured value, like what are those three numbers and how can they, or, or rather why can it be so vastly different? And, and your point is very well made. They, they sometimes can be the same number, but most of the time they are different numbers and vastly different. You know, what somebody's willing to pay is the market value of a house. But that isn't necessarily what the lender, if you're getting a loan, what the mortgage lender would say the value is. Mm -hmm. And then the insured value can be greatly different from all three of those numbers because a lot of people are getting their houses insured for what they paid for the house. But if you go to rebuild that house, the cost to rebuild could be greatly more. I'll give you a great example. I had a friend of mine. They lived in about a three-quarter million dollar house. It burned down. The cost to rebuild that house for them was $1.5 million. Had they insured their house for less than the cost to rebuild it and didn't have that uh, escalator in there, they would have been out of pocket the difference and had to pay the difference. So many people don't aren't aware of that. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it can be a huge financial burden to somebody to have to come out of pocket and pay the difference. So it's something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a little important for those who are not probably go back and check their homeowners or commercial uh, insurance then. Absolutely. Well, then kind of uh, fast forward and what are uh, quote unquote iBuyers? So there's, uh, you have a lot of these uh, iBuyers have come out. You mm-hmm. have, the, these are home buyers that are really firms in the sense that they're a, basically, it's a shelf company that they're, operating on the internet and they go by a host of different names, but they're all out there and you've seen, seen them all over the place. They're offering to buy your house, easy close, quick close. You don't have to do anything. We're going to get you, uh, you know, a great price. We're going to make it easy. All you have to do is sign the papers and move out. Um, there's a lot of those folks out there. However, the downside to those folks are you're typically leaving a lot of equity on the table. Uh, so you're paying for that convenience factor. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of one of the major downsides or the other downsides for someone u- utilizing that service? The, the other got you to that besides the equity that would be left on the table that you're giving up in exchange for the uh, a simple transaction. If, is if that's possible mm-hmm. uh, is when they come back and do their inspections, all those companies use their own in-house inspection and contractors to give them estimates and prices. And in their contracts, they typically have written in there, any of the repairs that we deem necessary will be determined by our, our repair people. Mm-hmm. And so they come back and if it's $10,000, they're going to hit you for another $10,000 off on the price. Oh. And I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. So it happens very frequently. So not only is the seller here kind of, taking it to the chin on losing equity, but then whatever quote unquote repairs needed just conveniently also reduces yes. uh, the price of the home. And a lot, of, in addition to that, they also, a lot of these companies are uh, requiring the use of their um, title companies and other services that they provide mm-hmm. in order to do the deal. So they make additional money that way and uh-huh. you don't have any control over what those prices are. Mm-hmm. Now, that is on the residential side. Do you also kind of feel or see that experience or trend towards commercial as well? Have not seen the iBuyer trend in a commercial market uh, as of yet. Doesn't mean it's not coming, but I think commercial is so much more complicated of a transaction. It's very complex. Uh, I think it would be much harder to replicate that. Uh, not to say it couldn't be done. Somebody might figure it out one day, but uh, I don't I don't see it necessarily on the immediate horizon. Mm-hmm. So as kind of as we scratch a little bit out this uh, in the beginning with the explosion of growth on the pricing on the residential side, uh, how is it like right now on the commercial side? Commercial, um, it's a very interesting market. Um, the office space, it, on the, the big office space, those folks, everybody's pretty much been going out with COVID, working at home. So there's been a lot of jobs that have been uh, relocated to the home office. So those people. Those offices are have been struggling to say why do we need all the all the space? So they're downsizing, which is putting pressure on the smaller office spaces, meaning they're getting gobbled up. Mm-hmm. And in some of the smaller office spaces, they're 
they just found maybe there's no need at all to even have an office. They just work out of the home and have everybody work remotely. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that a, a lot. So it's it's putting some pressure on that smaller to mid-sized market where the, the high end, the, the, the large square foot market is is really struggling. And mm-hmm. it, Cushman Wakefield says it could be 2025 before that market recovers. Wow. Okay. Well, then kind of looking into the future then as kind of more businesses are doing, going with a hybrid approach or some business, you may even completely downside permanently. Um, does this mean that the leasing prices will eventually go down to meet market value and may give opportunity for other new businesses that might have been initially priced out? I, I think you'll see an adjustment on prices. I think the the smaller square footage market I think is going to hold up on the prices. The the large square footage market's probably going to get a little bit softer, but they're going to get real creative. What they're already discussing is saying, "Hey, if we have a multi story building with you know hundred thousand square feet or or more, whatever that number is, mm. they might say, hey, 'Hey, let's keep the first three floors as office, and we're going to convert the rest of the floors into a condo, mm-hmm. you know, condo living homes and and.'" And go that route, then you have a mixed a mixed use environment. So you can live above, walk downstairs, go to their office. So they're coming up with some, trying to come up with some creative solutions on that. And so I think we're starting to see that. Mm-hmm. Kind of speaking, of having moved down here two years ago, I'm noticing kind of a trend of this thing called live work play on one location. And I've kind of discovered you know, Avalon and all these other places are growing. Uh, is this more of a, a Georgia or Atlanta phenomenon, or do you see uh, duplicates of this perhaps uh, around the country? I think this is being replicated throughout many cities in, in the entire country. Uh, people have gotten lost in that um, suburban uh, strip mall jungle, mm-hmm. and they're they're seeking something a little more authentic, something a little more close to home, something they can – walk to something they can enjoy, connect with friends. Hey, let's meet up at the restaurant. So it's, it's, it's a, it's something that's really occurring nationwide. So then kind of looking into the future, uh, I know I'm kind of asking boldly here, uh, whether or not with your crystal ball is, will this kind of be the new, um, paradigm going forward? Certainly for the, for the near, near future. I think absolutely. Um, where it goes from here, I don't know what the what the next trend will be, but I certainly think for the next ten or fifteen years, I, I certainly see things continuing in that direction. Yes. Then, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, additional opportunities uh, for our listeners, those who are kind of for the first time home buyers, or perhaps those who are looking at well, now that they they kind of see that they they're having a bit more, I guess, negotiating power per se, uh, kind of opening up their first office. What would be your advice uh, for these two demographics? So people will start with the homeowners, Mm -hmm. somebody that wants, seeks to be a homeowner. First thing is you want to get an experienced agent and everybody I know has to start somewhere. I started somewhere, but in this market, it is absolutely critical that you have somebody that knows how to negotiate, somebody that understands contracts, who is savvy, somebody's full-time, not a part-timer, somebody that's really knows what they're doing, has a number of years experience and plenty of deals under their belt to be able to navigate this market for a first time home buyer. That's going to be their best success mm-hmm. on somebody that's just starting out in business and looking to get their first office. Certainly the same, uh, same uh, advice applies there, but uh, really take a really good inventory of what you think your space needs are going to be and really scrutinize that. I see a lot of people get way more space than they need. Um, you can always move up later, but the death of a business I've seen so many times, both in retail and a commercial office space, is getting too much and having too much of a burden that they have to carry, and they're not able to cover it. Mm-hmm. So something to think about when you're getting out there. Certainly. Well, then kind of uh, on the flip side is uh, sometimes I might even hear, well, what if I grow? And that's why I'm looking for a larger space. What will be kind of uh, your response or advice towards that perspective? Be looking, have a, have a business plan in place to know where, you know, what your three to five year goals are, and what your growth goals are mm-hmm. and, and understand where that's going to be. And, and, you know, I, I don't think anybody could have predicted the, uh, the pandemic and how mm-hmm. that was going to affect our business. But to the best of your knowledge, take a look at 
what you think your business needs are going to be, how many people realistically could work from home mm-hmm. uh, from their home office and how many realistically really need to be in the office and really scrutinize that um, as, as you grow. Uh, one of my clients that uh, do a lot of business with him, um, we were about ready to buy a new office building for him. And they, when this came about, they were able to refocus and kind of figure out that they could, they could manage with the space they had. So they did, didn't end up having to move. So it worked out really well for them. So kind of going forward as kind of a, a quote unquote universal recommendation or advice going forward for the commercial real estate needs of business owners is to, as you say, scrutinize as to who absolutely needs to be in the office versus doing the hybrid approach. Absolutely. So, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, people will get way too, too much space for a, a per employee, right? Mm-hmm. So they, everybody thinks they need these big offices with the big conference desk and the guest chairs and all that. When real, in reality, it's probably truly not needed and you can get by with something smaller where you might be able to put two people in one space and create a cubicle situation. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's definitely something you want to look at. Uh, because you can get really creative with with office planning uh, folks and, and furniture folks on how many people you get in a space and still manage the noise levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things is a trend recently was over the last number of years was go to this complete open office concept. Well, what the people were realized with all the people in the office, it really created for a noisy work environment. So that's something to consider depending on, you know, how what the level of of customer contact you have, how noisy that business environment's going to be, how productive it's going to be for your employees. Maybe the thing is to go back to some uh, semi uh, private offices or, you know, creating partitions that are higher that have some sound barriers in them. Uh, so you can kind of have a hybrid environment. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So for our listeners, whether they be a first time home buyer or first time business looking for real estate, how can they best find you? Well, they can reach out to us a number of different ways. My uh, office phone number is 678-430-3600. They can find us on the web at winfieldrealtygroup.com, uh, or they can also email me at randy at winfieldrealtygroup.com. Great. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. All right. Todd, we have uh, Todd Harris from Skillshot Media. Welcome to the show, Todd. Great to be here. Great. So kind of share with us uh, your background as to what got you to start Skillshot Media. Well, like a lot of people that get into the technology field, I was obsessed with video games as a young person. So seventh grade, me, played a lot of video games, learned to do computer programming, to grow up and make games. And I was fortunate to be part of a group here in Alpharetta called High Res Studios that develops video games um, started with just four of us. And now there's about 500 people at that company making games. And while I was making games, I saw clearly the attention that gaming was garnering. And of course in business, everything's about attention. It's our most scarce, valuable resource and everybody's competing to get attention. And it was pretty clear to me that video games were capturing the attention, particularly of the next generation. And so um, my hypothesis was that this attention could be used by other brands, not just video game publishers, but non-endemic brands, the the Coca-Colas of the world, the Microsofts of the world, the Kias of the world, Comcast, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I and a partner basically spun out a business unit from high res studios, a maker of games and took it independent. And that's what Skillshot media is. So we put on events similar to your listeners, uh, like live sporting events or sports broadcasts, all the production values, the play by play commentators, the motion graphics, all the sizzle, mm-hmm. but we do it for video games being played competitively. So that's what Skillshot does. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners who might be, when they're thinking of production for sports, they're probably thinking like the NFLs and the UFCs and the like. Can you share with us a little background for, for those who are not in a know? Because for my, for my listeners to probably think, already know uh, me as the host as being the nerd or the gamer here. So, so I'm kind of geeking out here. But kind of share with us like how big really is the video game industry and how does that compare to 
the traditional sports world. Yeah, so it is time for revenge of the nerds. So um, you know we've we've come from the from the basement and, and onto the grand stage. Um, so just to give some context, the video game industry today globally is about one hundred and seventy billion dollars. And so for context, because you asked about fans of sports, mm-hmm. you really have to take all of uh, the box office receipts from film, so all of the movie industry, combine that with all North American professional sports combined, and video games is larger than those two combined. So it is not even close the largest form of entertainment and media on the planet, and I think it's just getting started because the year-over-year growth, even before the pandemic, was roughly 10% kind of annual growth. And in the year of the pandemic, it was over 20% because as you can imagine, a lot of people stuck in their house, you can only watch so much Netflix mm-hmm. and you want entertainment. You also want to connect with other people. That's what games let you do. So uh, in a weird way, it, it benefited somewhat from the pandemic. And I think that growth is going to continue even as we get our arms around the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, with such a large number and kind of putting things into context here, how is it possible that the rest of the world have missed this big elephant in a room? It's really generational. So um, when you say rest of the world, it it really divides into those that grew up with video games or maybe games came a little bit after their formulative year. So Mm. in terms of rest of of the world, um, oddly, the U.S. is actually somewhat late to the party. Um, South Korea is really where this phenomenon started, uh, in Asia in general, it is enormous. Even in Europe, the fandom is very high. And, and part of that is because in North America, there are so many strong, uh, pro sports. We have football, basketball, hockey, others, and in the rest of the world, they may have, uh, only one or two, you know, something like soccer. And so video games actually fills a void uh, in the other parts of the world. But generationally, if uh, you don't play video games and you're a listener, but if you have children or grandchildren, I would wager that they're spending some time with video games. And it tends to be once you enjoy that as a passion, you don't give it up. You might play a little bit less, but you tend to continue to enjoy it. So it's really a generational thing, whether you kind of understand how big it is or not. Mm. So kind of lo- looking in terms of like a business opportunity uh, for particularly for our audience, like, okay, now they can appreciate how large of a market this is. What are the reasons should they really care or even look in terms of, as you say, sponsor or even market towards this demographic? Yeah, there's a couple reasons they might care. Um, certainly as a parent, they, they should know what, what is uh, occupying their young person. But as a business person, um, there is a tremendous amount of investment going into this because it's a new form of media and just a new form of engagement. And so there's a lot of investment opportunities that we could talk about. Um, but even more broadly, as a marketing channel, it's really under leveraged right now. Again, if marketing is trying to get as much attention as you can and also get return on investment. Over time, different marketing channels are better or less suited towards that. Um, and of course, if if you uh, weren't aware what back in the day television was and the power of reaching an audience on television and someone gave you the facts and figures and you were early to jump in and be a leader in television advertising, you'd enjoy great return on investment. And similarly with the social media uh, revolution, I would say, and digital marketing. And video games is really, in my view, the next frontier because it enjoys this enormous attention, but it's candidly somewhat underpriced. It's a, it's a value because it's digitally native that allows you to target very locally or to go globally. So you might be a very small business and your gaming strategy might be as simple as sponsoring a high school or collegiate esports team in your local neighborhood the way you might otherwise have put your name on the jersey of a softball team. But that can scale up all the way to global events. Um, this week, 
This isn't an event that our company puts on, but just to give folks a sense, this week the competition began in the World Championship for League of Legends. And League of Legends, if viewership uh, matches what previous years has been, will be uh, 100 million unique uh, people will watch the final event. So that puts that at the level of the Super Bowl, actually a little bit above the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. And certainly – getting one or two minutes of attention in that video game is way more efficient than if you were to buy a commercial in the Super Bowl. So that just gives you a sense from your local team to a global event that rivals the Super Bowl. It's a valuable marketing channel for, for companies. So if we were to kind of fast forward, uh, would it be correct to look into the future in terms of quote unquote, like a prediction per se that the commercials on these large events will be, equal in terms of the value or the pricing for like, I'm just trying to think of the major companies like the Budweiser commercial for the Super Bowl. Yes. And, and already brands like Budweiser are engaging in this, in this uh, new media form. And um, what makes it exciting also maybe a little intimidating if you're not in the space is there's so many different ways to engage. The nice thing about TV is it's pretty straightforward. It might be expensive, but you you kind of know what what you would uh, what you would pay for there. Same with radio advertising. In the world of video games, are you integrating in the game itself, in an event? Are you sponsoring a team? Are you sponsoring a particular player? Budweiser actually has established their own media channel on the platform. Twitch TV, which is where a lot of people enjoy live video games. It's freely watched on your phone or on your uh, computer or your Xbox. Mm -hmm. And again, just to give you a sense, the audience watching other people playing video games on just Twitch is larger than most television networks. It's much larger than CNN, just for a uh, scale of context, and that's watching other people play video games. So in the case of Budweiser, they've set up their own channel. But the reason Skillshot exists is uh, we put on events, we run leagues, and we also work with companies and brands really as a as an agency to help them reach this audience. So whether that's consulting or directly placing medium, we try to provide guidance because if you're not familiar with it, it can be a fairly intimidating space and we try to make it less so so we're seeing a lot of this opportunity for small business even on from the local level all the way up to the large corporates the budweisers so looking at another opportunity because as you brought up where for anyone with kids or grandkids they're seeing them playing all these games and now speaking of revenge of the nerds instead of people kind of wanting to be the nfl and nba player now they want to be a professional quote-unquote gamer and, and for most parents, you probably get a lot of these questions. Well, I'm a little concerned because what if it doesn't work out? You know, I want them to go to college. Like, how, how would you kind of navigate that, that conversation? Yeah, I talk about this a lot. This is usually where the teenager presses record you know, on the <laughs> phone so they can, they can show someone. Yeah. Um, the reality is, I mean, first, I'll, I'll start with a disclaimer because, of course, anything can be taken to excess, no matter what that is. You can play a physical sport to excess and be out of balance with other requirements, requirements of your grades, requirements of your household, et cetera. So that goes without, um, or it should go without saying, but it's worth saying. Uh, that said, most parents may not have an appreciation for all the positive aspects of gaming when it's done correctly. And the, the mental activity is, you know, pretend instead of a video game, your son or daughter is playing chess, which is perceived as an intellectual sport, a sport of the mind. And the reality is many of these video games are more complex than chess in terms of the intellectual skills demanded. A key difference from chess is many of them are played with other people. So it's also an opportunity to develop social-emotional skills, teamwork skills, uh, communication skills, things that you may not get in your traditional education. So Um, I could talk about this topic for a while because it's a big passion point of mine, but I'll just say that when done correctly, really just think about video games as project-based learning or an opportunity for project-based learning. Mm -hmm. And it's a chance to deliver a lot of the values that parents want from traditional sports 
combined with some other intellectual activity like chess or like um, mastering and playing a musical instrument for fun. That's really the itch that it scratches for kids. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of scratch at, at least at the tip of the ice before the parents are kind of now a little interested or peaked at least. And of course, the kids is recording right now. It's like, hey, see, Todd is telling, you know, let me play games. But kind of scratch a little in terms of another opportunity in terms of the scholastic area or even scholarship opportunities that I w- was not aware about. Yeah, so currently in the United States, there's over 200 universities that are offering scholarships for video games. So if you're exceptionally good at some of the popular games, specifically a game like League of Legends, like Rocket League, like Overwatch, all of these are team-based games. Colleges for recruiting and retention purposes are setting up programs. And to give you a sense, on an annual basis, there's about $16 million in scholarships for being very good at these particular esports games. Mm-hmm. And the number of schools is about doubled every year in the past five years. So it's growing very, very quickly. Um, so that's kind of the, the collegiate landscape. And more broadly, an area that, that we focus on is a lot of research around what happens when these programs are implemented at the high school level. So here in Georgia, esports, as of three years ago, is a varsity sport. You can earn a letter jacket playing a set of games. And there's about 30 states in the U.S. where that's already the case. And what it's shown is when it's implemented in the school setting, you tend to see higher STEAM engagement. So the skills of the next workforce, basically around you know science, technology, engineering, art, and math, that correlates with playing video games, tends to light people up the way it did for me as a young person. So STEAM skills, improvement, General engagement with their schoolwork improves. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's used as a carrot, like you need your grades to be at a certain level in order to continue to play on the on the team, just like you would maybe to stay on the cross-country team or the basketball team. Mm-hmm. And then um, finally, social-emotional learning, which is a big emphasis uh, of schools today uh, with all the conversation around mental health and uh, kind of just being a good human that other people want to work with. Those sort of skills also are seen uh, increasing positively when it's implemented at the high school level. So a lot of opportunity for, as you termed it, scholastic esports. Well, at least that might have piqued some attention uh, for our parents and grandparents now that they know how much money (laughs) is on the table. Yeah. And, you know, outside of League of Legends, the 100 million viewer event, another event that started this week, a game that most people – probably haven't heard of, but called Dota 2, their global event was launched uh, this week. It'll take place for about a month. And the prizing for that single event will be $40 million. Again, just uh, puts it in context since it's much larger than the winner of the Masters, the U.S. Open, or most any other traditional sporting event. So, so kind of looking in while everyone else's attention is to the masters and, and the tours and everything. And then we have a group of room of nerds having a $40 million jackpot. Revenge of the nerds. <laughs> so kind of fast forward and then looking at, at bringing it back to, to Skillshot. Recently, you guys re- relocated uh, from Alpharetta to, to Buckhead. Kind of share with us the, the rationale with that. Yeah, well, it was super interesting listening to Randy talk about Real estate, because obviously as a, as a company, we um, were migrating many of those decisions. We broke off Skillshot from high-res studios just at the outset of the, of the pandemic, basically, uh, in, in January of, of 2020. And so um, we took about a year and a half off from having physical space that we were occupying um, to let everything sort out. So our employees were working from home and we actually developed a lot of great technology for doing virtual events. So the players were from, were at home, the commentators were at home, our production team was all at their home and we stitched it all together over the internet and, and did some great events that maybe we'll get a chance to talk about. But mm-hmm. It, uh, as much as we can tell, things are opening up again and there's an appetite for, for live events. And so around that, we wanted a bricks and mortar facility and we did decide on an area, you know, here in the Atlanta area, um, formerly known as Lindbergh Center. Um, they're rebranding it as Uptown and there were a few things that made it interesting for us. 
One was its central location to Atlanta generally. Two mm-hmm. is the public transit. It's right at the Lindbergh Center MARTA station, which means if you're a competitor coming to uh, us from anywhere in the world, you can hopefully hop on a direct flight or one or two hops, come to Atlanta, busiest airport in the world, mm-hmm. without leaving the airport, get on the MARTA, take MARTA to Lindbergh, and we're literally right across the street. It's about 10 10 feet that you would have to walk to come to our competition area and production studio. Mm -hmm. So that was a big benefit. And then uh, just the developer is also investing a lot in that property, really around some of the keys that Randy spoke about around and you spoke about work, live, play. So we hope to be part of the work and the play um, and, uh, and really a way to activate community events for that, for that neighborhood around gaming and esports. So kind of looking into not just the, the live event and, this, and the play work studio that you're expanding out there, and then you touch scratch a little bit in terms of people's experience being able to play or quote-unquote work slash play uh, from home and, and observe, what is kind of the, the better differentiator what Skillshot can bring in in terms of the in-person event that someone might not be able to experience um, just watching through Twitch? Yeah, it's a really good question because um, we often say that we compete with the couch and the couch is really comfortable. Um, you know, you got to give people a reason to leave their couch, uh, particularly this demographic. And so almost every event that we do is designed to be hybrid. And so there is uh, an on-site component. And even though competition can happen from homes, bringing the players on site does give a higher degree of competitive integrity. Uh, And again, if you're not in the industry, it may sound a little weird, but you want things like uh, ping, your internet latency, to be equivalent between all of the players. And if if you are playing from Europe and I'm playing from the east coast of the U.S. and Randy's on the west coast of the U.S., even that could make a big difference because we're talking about fractions of milliseconds that that make a make a difference this is a game of you know millimeters in some cases so bringing players together has a much higher degree of competitive integrity and when large dollars are on the line you tend to do that and then for the viewers similarly if you ever attend an esports event in person which i recommend everyone do um just the energy level is really incredible i mean it's very community oriented people think gamers are solitary not not at all it is very much a social experience these days so to be around people that share a passion i compare it to going to an atlanta united game mixed with going to let's say a rock concert or edm concert for your favorite artist because it's very audio visual there's a lot of screens there's smoke there's crowd with thunder sticks making a lot of noise and you might not know what they're cheering about but you'll still get caught up in the action because you'll just feel feel the energy mm-hmm. so for our listeners who are kind of just listening to this new world for the first time and now they're looking at okay there's a lot of marketing opportunity doesn't matter what size i'm in or for the parents who are looking okay there's scholastic opportunity doesn't matter you know where my kids interests are we prefer to push them towards steam but this could be as you say the carrot uh, for them. Uh, what advice, at least on the company side, that is now kind of considering or not being exposed to this, uh, what advice would you give them to get started to market towards this demographic? So it's a great question. And of course, that's part of why Skillshot is here to help. So I'd certainly uh, invite folks to reach out to us. I would say that if you have a a young person in your household and this seems foreign i mean actually like sit down and and talk with them about what they're into and why that can kind of be insightful just right there within your household you have some of the target demographic um if you have a relationship already with a local college you might also want to reach out to them because it's very likely they are thinking about an esports strategy and again for a smaller business that might be a good way to get started. But of course we invite uh, many to, you know, to reach out to us so we can help point people in a, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So that being on a business side and on the parent side, how can they get started and even exploring? Cause now one, they're just caring about this now with opportunity. Where would they even go in terms of learning more? 
Yeah, so beyond our website, another website I would point people to is that of an organization called NASEF. So it's uh, N-A-S-E-F dot org. That's a nonprofit. It's the North American Scholastic Esports Federation. And this is a group that I'm involved with outside of my for-profit. But it really is supporting parents and students with this uh, new world of scholastic esports. So how does gaming become a Trojan horse for learning? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we call it chocolate broccoli. You come for the chocolate, smuggle in some nutrients. And so all of NASIF's materials are free. And on that website, you can see some of the research, some other uh, supporting materials around career paths in the game and esports industry, uh, including career paths that have nothing to do with steam, even though that's one of the, one of the biggest opportunities, but there's others as well. Mm. Well, I know we can definitely uh, talk for hours and kind of pick your brain on on the world, both in the business and the scholastic opportunity through gaming. Uh, You did scratch a little bit uh, on Walt. They don't necessarily have to go down the steam route. If that's not their interest, can you give us kind of a quick example of what that would even look like? Yes. So, of course, Steam is very broad, but if you think about gaming is really technology meets entertainment, creative industry meets sports and sports marketing, almost any job that you would find in the sports marketing ecosystem, as an example, you will find in the esports ecosystem. So uh, not every kid will grow up to be a LeBron But around LeBron, there is his social media manager and his lawyer and his agent and, uh, you know, his photographer, right? And um, there's journalists that cover what he's doing, et cetera. And so similarly, many kids think they're going to grow up to be a pro gamer and most will not. It's just as difficult as being a professional athlete. It just opens it up for a different demographic. But uh, even if they don't become a pro gamer, they could become a journalist or social media or do web design or do graphic design or do production. And so really any field you'd find in sports marketing as just one field you will find in esports. Great. And uh, what, any parting advice uh, to our listeners who are now just learning about this whole new world and okay, all right, well you got me sewed. So I, how do I get started? So, so if you're a parent, just talk with your child. You know, a lot of times it's intimidating because you don't know anything about it, but usually kids like to share their passion. And if you just come with authentic curiosity, mm-hmm. um, you'll learn a lot. And it's a chance for you to also guide guide your child um, around certain things, you know, life lessons and, and use it as a chance to impart life lessons. Um, because gaming is really all about you set goals within a game, you get feedback on the game on your goals, you achieve them, and then you're presented with a slightly higher, more challenging goal. I mean, what a great training tool for young people that encourages a growth mindset. You know, I can do it, right? I can do it. And achievement comes through that. So as a parent, lean into that, talk with your kid. And then as a a marketer, um, would encourage folks to to reach out to us to, to learn more. Great. So now that they're listening, how can they best find you and reach out to you? The website's probably the easiest, so that's just Skillshot.com. They can see a lot of examples of uh, other brands that we've worked with. They can see videos of what these productions look like because if you haven't been to one, it's a little hard to get your mind around, but video is the next best thing, and they can see those examples there, and they can also contact us through that. If um, if you are uh, esports curious beyond that, then certainly you can reach out to me. I'm, I'm pretty active on both Twitter and LinkedIn. So I'm Todd Allen Harris, T-O-D-D-A-L-A-N, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S on Twitter and also on LinkedIn and love to talk about this stuff. So please reach out. Great. Thank you. Thanks. So with the theme of Today's conversation is really looking uh, into the future, changing paradigms, whether changing in terms of both the commercial and uh, residential real estate, kind of merging the two worlds together, or uh, as for our listeners, kind of learning right now, oh, this, this video game industry is bigger than movie and sports 
and how many eyes do they have and how low are the price? We're going to talk about changing paradigms. So I would love to kind of bring our two guests back in terms of revolving around that conversation or the question of changing of paradigms. If we were to say, look into another five or 10 years out, what is something that you are, I want to say necessarily immediately predict, but see something, some inkling of change and that could be the next big thing going forward. So uh, so we'll give our guests a little time uh, to think about that question. So the question is, if we were to fast forward five or 10 years out, going around the theme of change of paradigms, what would be the next big thing? And this, of course, is the obligatory uh, disclosure. So this show is uh, sponsored by yours truly, myself, Anthony Chen, with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RAA, member FINRA SIPC. RAA is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names. Products or services referenced here are independent of RAA. The main office, is a, uh, our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me uh, at my office number, which is 6 three one four six five nine zero nine zero extension fifty seventy five or my email which is really just my full name anthony chen at lfnllc.com uh if you're interested in and love hearing what you're hearing and would like to visit uh, our prior episodes uh you can explore and check us out at family business radio show.com now bring out two lovely guests back. Randy, question. If we were to fast forward five, ten years out, what could be the new paradigm? One of the paradigms I think we're going to see, and we're actually seeing a shift already, um, a lot of people have been you know, perplexed about this crazy housing market and how that's affecting prices and how can I ever afford a home. Well, for the last number of years, we've been hearing a lot about tiny houses. Then there's been some conversation here over the last couple of years about affordable housing. So the the, the paradigm shift we're seeing and the, what we're going to see over the next few years is how creative we can get in the governmental agencies in terms of expanding, opening up the different types of housing options. For example, you know, back in the 50s, it was not uncommon for somebody to have a 1,200 or 1,500, 1,600 square foot house, and he raised a f- large family in that house. There'd usually be one bathroom, three bedrooms. There was four or five kids, mom and dad, and they managed. Uh, what we're going to see is maybe not quite the tiny house, but maybe there's something in between where, you know, you can get smaller lots, smaller houses, but something that's affordable, creates home ownership, investment, and and uh, buying into the community, I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see some uh, shift in some of the commercial office space being converted to uh, living space. We're going to probably see some commercial uh, centers uh, converted into condos or you know some kind of mixed use community. So I think we're we're definitely going to see that. So you be a, be on the lookout. Um, I think the governmental uh, folks are a little bit slower to change on that, but there's pressure on them to do that. So they're beginning to have those conversations. So over the next several years to five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a big shift in type of housing mix and the, where they're at and what they look like. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And Todd, same question to you. New paradigm in five to 10 years as this market is expanding. What could be the new thing coming around the corner? So I've acknowledged I'm a nerd. So I, th- I think about technology a lot. I think um, – I think as Randy talks about tiny houses, the next generation to me seems to generationally be a little bit less into accumulating stuff. Uh, They're thinking about the earth, they're changing values, whatever it is. And so I think maybe consistent with that theme of shrinking the footprint that people live in, um, just the value of of digital goods compared to real world goods, which makes the older generation very confused. But I think it's just going to continue. So anyone who's followed the the somewhat 
uh, hard-to-follow world of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and seeing these pieces of digital art that have scarcity attached to them going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm I'm not encouraging anyone to uh, necessarily invest in a particular NFT or even crypto, but I do think that trend of valuing digital items is not going away. You know, maybe it's a little overhyped short term, but I think it's underhyped long term. I think the next generation will continue to value items in the digital world. They'll continue to place a premium on them and they'll be shifting a lot of their consumption patterns to experience and digital and less accumulation of physical stuff. Um, And some of the blockchain technology will uh, will be the tool that enables that in the next version of the of the internet. So, um, a little bit cerebral, but just more digital, less physical. I think that's the trend. Great, thank you. Now, for a little uh, section of what I like to call um, Anthony's perspective, uh, these coming in from the financial world. Uh, so, as we're talking about paradigm shift and switching things from more of the material world uh, into more, whether it be digital or Maybe I would like to put my own little bias spin towards it uh, is more of experiences, especially with what everyone's kind of experienced uh, with what 2020 was. Well, 2020, uh, a lot of people's values in terms of what's important to them has changed, especially uh, when conversation comes to around financial and retirement planning. It's not so much, well, I want to have uh, the big boat and the big house, but rather what are the memories and experiences that I can achieve in my retirement. So I don't necessarily need the, the castle or the mansion, but I could perhaps attend more live events. Uh, if we were to fast forward for our nerd generation, 30 years out is where our ideal retirement or happening place instead of like a college town, but being next to a skill shot uh, studio or something to the likes. So here's kind of uh, talking about paradigm shift is that when having a conversation of retirement planning or financial planning, uh, don't just think of, well, I'm just going to sit on a rocking chair uh, at age 65 and eat bonbons and that, that'd be the, that'd be the uh, sail under the sunset, but rather rethink in terms of the conversation of, well, what is my paradigm going to be like in terms of my experiences and the memories I want to build? Not on material things, but not experience. And that's a little bit about my take. Thank you to listening to Family Business Radio. Thank you.